0: to the podcast. I'm your host, Roger Channon, and with me here today, I have a very special guest, Alexander D. Christopher Ritis. He is the founder of Synthesis Architecture and co-owner with his principal, Notis Papadimus. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I understand you have a background in modern residential design, retail spaces, and Byzantine ecclesiastical architecture. I think that is very fascinating. Uh, I would like to talk about the Byzantine architecture part
1: and how you you got into that. I've always had an interest in that. Um, I really uh, started it when our parish was building a church at the time that I was starting architecture school. And uh, I learned more about the Byzantine architecture at the time. In fact, I did a thesis project on it when I was finishing my degree and uh, from that point on I saw how much better we can design our Byzantine churches here. There's a very rich tradition in the way those churches were designed and I thought it was absolutely fascinating how much uh, went into the design of these churches that spanned is a style that spanned from the 4th century AD and for about a thousand years developed into something pretty amazing. And it seemed like anyone that was designing a Byzantine church or an Orthodox Christian church in the United States and so many other places uh, really didn't do that much more than maybe try to put a dome on top of it and. Um, other than that, so much of the architectural expression that led to the richness of those buildings was not there.
0: That's incredibly fascinating and a very cool niche to have in the architectural profession. So that is, if if you need uh some Byzantine architecture, a church constructed, you have your you have your firm, synthesis architecture. So let's talk about you and your background and how you ended up here in Cincinnati and Uh, How you ended up starting a practice here in Cincinnati.
1: Well, I finished uh, my degrees at Ohio State. I got a master of architecture, and then uh, at the same time, I was taking some urban planning courses, which really fascinated me. And I uh, finished a degree in uh, city and regional planning as well. Uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't planning on on doing that when I started my master of architecture, but My interest in it grew and uh, I ended up uh, doing a paper in one of the planning ethics classes and got tapped to be editor for the Journal of Planning Literature, which meant that uh, I would get a stipend, I would get my tuition paid for, and I could stay on and finish the Master of City and Regional Planning degree. I got an interest in uh, a lot of different planning issues, urban design issues, mainly the way uh, large tracts of land get developed and got interested in a better way of doing that, which at that time was called neo-traditional planning. Uh, now it's known as a new urbanism. Interesting. And uh, because I had that background and had invested quite a bit in that as well, I uh, had a publication to my name a- at that time, and I uh, wanted to not just put that aside, but make it part of my architecture uh, career. So I was looking for an architecture firm that also did planning work, and it happened at the time that uh, Michael Schuster Associates uh, was getting into some planning work and downtown redevelopment work specifically. And... I interviewed with, for the position with uh, Principal Craig Gossman at the time, who was uh, a co-principal of MSA at that time. Now he's moved on. He's got his own practice. But um, hes uh, he was the impetus for me moving to Cincinnati. And I worked at MSA for a few years. It turned out that the planning work wasn't as profitable as they hoped it would be. And typically, planning is more of an altruistic profession. It seems like people go in there because they want to do something good and influence uh, the communities around them, but it's not always the most lucrative. Um, And so MSA started kind of uh, scaling back on the planning work, and it made sense for me to move on at the time, too, and uh, worked uh, did a little bit of work on my own, actually, Uh, had uh, a couple people approached me about designing a new home for them. Uh, I did some work for um, in retail as well, uh, namely with lens crafters for a while. Uh, then uh, I found work with another firm that did architecture and planning work, Shear & Shear. Uh, and I worked there for a brief period when uh, an opportunity came to work at uh, Carl Strauss Associates. So at Shear & Shear, um, also, they had hired me. The work kind of waned off, and uh, they had to cut their losses. And it it was the most sensible thing for them to do to uh, let me go. Yeah. Um, and it was it, I'd never been laid off before, uh, but it happened at a very opportune time. And uh, David was very nice about it. He wanted to, he assured me that it wasn't a reflection on my abilities or anything like that. It was more the situation. So I felt heartened by that. Uh, but uh, fortunately, within a few days, I had an offer to work with Carl Strauss, a very, um, very good man who I had the opportunity to get to know. And uh, he's a great, great architect and even better person. Uh, so I, I think that had a big influence on me. And I just saw how he worked, how he designed, how we worked with clients, um, but it was a it was a great great opportunity for me to get to learn from somebody like him interesting so what were the circumstances
0: that you started synthesis architecture and, and when you're working with say these different firms, did you have synthesis architecture at the time, and you kind of worked where you don't have a prime agreement? Meaning you don't uh, take credit for the design? Or as, what's kind of the circumstances for the creation of your firm?
1: Well, uh, at some point, Carl Strauss had decided he was going to retire. And I didn't know whether I was ready to start my own practice or not. Um, my immediate reaction was, well, I probably should start looking for another, another firm to work for. He gave me four months' notice to plan ahead, which was very nice of him to do that, too. That's unusual. And um, so when I told him I'll start looking, he said, and what am I going to do with my everything here in the office then? I'm not going to – I can't fit it into my place. (laughs) What (laughs) am I going to – where am I going to put it? And uh, he told me I should try starting my own practice now and uh, really – how can you start a practice and have everything set up for you like that? And in terms of at least the office space being there, we were pretty much out of work at the time. So um, it meant that I'd have to give up my income because you know I'm on my own. I'd have to pay office rent and then start from there and build up enough clientele to pay myself and pay for everything. So it was kind of scary, uh, but at the same time, I didn't. I wanted long-term to start my own practice. I just didn't know it was going to happen then, but I didn't think I'd find another opportunity like that to start an office as well.
0: Yeah, that's incredible to be given an opportunity where you don't have to worry about a lot of those initial costs and starting a firm and gathering equipment and things. So that's... that's... So
1: the equipment was uh, two drafting tables, a desk, uh, there's no electronic equipment. Uh, and one of the things that you know wasn't uh, the best preparation for me was uh, technologically. We did everything—I mean everything—by hand in wow. the office. The only, uh, the most advanced piece of equipment in the office was uh, telephone answering machine. <laughs> We didn't have a copier, even. It was uh, everything, everything by hand. And he didn't believe in copying details and pasting them onto your sets of plans like so many other firms did, even before uh, electronic work. I mean, a lot of firms would take a, a detail from another project and slap it onto the new project because it was the exact same detail. At Carl Strauss's office, we did not do that. We would look at another detail, maybe, but then make sure that we interpret it properly for uh, for the project we were on. Even if it it was, even if it did turn out to be the exact same, it had to be hand drawn because that way you think through it and you give yourself the opportunity to adjust anything that needs adjustment. Interesting.
0: So when you're going through this transition, what what year? What time
1: was that approximately? It was like. It was uh were most
0: architects using CAD. Yes, they yes. were. Okay. So when
1: I started working for Karl Strauss, it was 1997. Um, there's probably, you know, I don't know if it was around 50-50 at the time in terms of AutoCAD work and and working by hand. But by the time I finished working for it, it was like 90-10 or 95-5 percentage wise in terms of. Uh, firms using AutoCAD, uh, BIM wasn't uh, w- wasn't something. It was, there were the software was being developed, but it wasn't out and ready for use for years after that. So AutoCAD was it as far as what architectural firms did. It was two dimensional drafting basically uh, that firms used. Interesting. So wa-
0: walk me through. You you st- you start your firm. You're out there on your own now. How did you start gathering clients? Because I mean, I imagine you have a new firm. You have you do have a lot of experience at this time, but I mean, how do you find
1: clients and and survive? In other words, get the word out as much as I could. To uh, uh, I developed um, <clears throat> kind of a, bro- a simple brochure that was wasn't so long that it would take forever to read, but um, I developed a, a paper brochure that I mailed to all the Orthodox Christian churches in our region. And, um, from that, I got responses from a couple of them. Um, so that was one area. Um, and then, uh, I also looked into going online and seeing if I could put our name out there for people to, to find us as well. And, uh, was able to get a few clients that way it wasn't much but it was enough to pay the bills um and we kind of made it through the first year and had you know probably a little bit of a drop in income from what i was making but it was enough to get by the following year uh you know the that doubled and the year after that that doubled again and i was doing much better that at at that stage but it just took a lot of time i had to do well by my clients um you know people were leaving online ratings at the time too and uh reviews um on different you know media and i usually got good reviews which was good and you know i i i, I wanted to do well by my clients uh, make sure they're comfortable with the whole process be responsive um and you know, treat them the way i'd like to be treated and um uh, also, uh, I learned a lot about how to treat a client through watching Carl Strauss. Uh, being the only other person in the office, I, mean, I overheard how he spoke to clients, how he met with them in person, how he talked them through the process. So I learned a lot from the way he worked with clients, and I try to carry that too. I, That's very interesting.
0: I imagine it had to be difficult at the beginning, too, because you're, you're going out and you're looking for clients. But I mean, traditionally, when you're in a large architecture firm, you have certain people that sort of deal with gathering clients deal. And then you have other people that are involved with the construction drawings. So you're kind of doing both. And I imagine there's a lot of late nights involved in, in trying to get a lot of production out yet gather new clients and things. Yes. and you have to be very efficient about that.
1: Yes, there, it's, a, it's a totally different way of doing things than what you're, you don't learn those things in school, and there's a reason for it. Um, there, there's a lot that, about architecture that needs to be learned on the job, and um, a lot of that has to do with managing a practice as well. Um, a couple of things I learned was that you spend about half your time running the practice and the other half doing the projects. Um, In a way, it's great because you get to run the projects the way you think they should be run. Uh, You don't have anyone like changing things on you, and the design process is a little bit simpler if you're working on a small enough project that you can handle. If you're working on very large projects, you need to have other areas of expertise, and you need to build a team around you to bring all the expertise you need to do a project fully. But on the smaller scale commercial and residential projects, sometimes it keeps things a little bit simple. There is some efficiency in being the architect and the drafter on the project where you don't have to transfer as much information. Um, but you work with uh, – you know, you, 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 there's so much time that you need to spend to do other things. Yeah, um, you have to write agreements with your cl- well. You have to go meet your clients, see if they want to hire you. They sometimes you go out, you meet with them, and um, they're just wanting some ideas, and they're gonna consider you and a few other people. Um, sometimes they, you need to, uh, you know, do some work ahead of time to get the project. One of the
0: common things I hear from architects just starting their firms is it's difficult. When you're first starting out, you, you oftentimes get taken advantage of by the client. in in a sense, they, they come to you and you're excited and you want to do work for them. But then you end up doing a certain amount of free labor for them. I hear that's a really common problem. Do you, do you have to deal with that? How, how do you manage, uh, say, client expectation and budget versus, uh, excuse me, client expectation versus budget?
1: Well, um, it does happen. Yeah, sure. Um, Usually, clients are good people, and they'll pay you for the work that you do. Uh, Every now and then, it doesn't happen, or there's a misunderstanding, and it doesn't. So um, one thing I learned from working with Carl Strauss was that he would start projects very often with a handshake. He didn't write agreements and give to clients and so on. Um, other other firms I worked with, like at, at Shear and Shear and MSA, they had letter agreements that they usually used to start a project with, and there was a, a you know, a, 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 there was a, a retainer involved. And with Carl Strauss, he started with a, just a you know, a, a handshake. He did ask for a retainer, um, but there wasn't anything in writing. He just said how he was going to charge the client. He was clear about it, but verbally. And, um, you know, sometimes I started a project verbally too, And uh, but I wasn't Carl Strauss. I was a new guy who mm-hmm. was just starting out, it looked kind of youngish. And uh, they, you know, when you're an architect, and you're getting a project, you're usually being entrusted to design something that's going to cost in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So, um, and that's part of the reason why sometimes it's harder for younger architects to make a start is because there's a lot being entrusted on them and people want to see experience um, and and some proven skill over uh, many years' time. Definitely. Well, when you're starting out, you don't quite have that yet. So
0: It's a journey, that's for sure. And architecture, I've come to find, is one of those professions where you never stop learning. There's always something new, new, whether it be building technologies or a new
1: program you have to learn. So it's, it's never ending. There is always something. Then the profession changes. Um, so you're having to figure things out for the first time often. Um. Uh, one example, there's many examples, but one of them is the, the new technology that comes out. But uh, even like the energy checks that uh, started to become required, that was a new software that you had to learn and know how to uh, you know, prove to the building department that your building was energy efficient. Yeah. I mean, we still design uh, both passively and actively to make buildings energy efficient. And it's something that we always propose to clients, uh, whether they want it or not, will at least propose it and show them how it'll benefit them in terms of life cycle costs. And uh, sometimes even with a design budget, but th- typically it's the life cycle cycle costs where you get a payoff for doing that. Do you, do you mainly do that in the form of the lead? To, or do you just say, hey, what's... Well, it, unless it's someplace where they stand to gain great... Mm-hmm. Uh, tax advantages, I usually say it's not worth going through the process. It's very uh, difficult. uh, But you do get a certification. And if that certification has value to you, go for it. If it doesn't, then it's better for us to design passively and and find active systems that might make sense. Um, So we'll look into like whether geothermal makes sense. Um, good insulation always makes sense, so I tell them that's probably the number one thing that has a payoff is insulating your building well and properly in, in ways that it's not gonna cause, sometimes you can insulate it so well that it causes other problems, so you gotta be careful about the technology. And a lot of that just I, I learned on, in practice uh, because the technologies are changing and as any architect knows, there's a requirement for uh, for uh, continuing education, uh, but it, there's uh, probably even more that you need to learn than what the continuing education requirements mm-hmm. are. And you know, when uh, as our abilities change, our technologies uh, change, we're the ones that have to tell our clients how to best take advantage of it. So we better keep up. So definitely, and. If they do decide to do that lead
0: certification, you tell them you know you're likely going to have a bike rack out front because you get your your point.
1: Sure for that so yeah. But
0: um, moving on. So uh, if if you could do it all over again, what would you tell your younger self just starting out the firm? Did you make any really big mistakes that you were like, oh no, and this is a big lesson learned that if I told other people, they could avoid those mistakes.
1: Um, well. I think it's good to go for it, try to learn all the fundamentals of practice well. What I would tell somebody now is uh, look at and study all the things that an architect needs to know to to practice successfully. The best place for that and the most common resource, and it's a no-brainer to use it, I think, is the AXP guidelines. Uh, In 2016, uh, the summer of 2016, a- AXP was uh, was uh, put out for students to see, uh, to to use. It replaced the IDP program that had been in place for about 40 years. And it really was an improvement on it and streamlined it. But what really made it great is a set of tasks or subject areas that, that you have to be familiar with in order to have that ability to take a project from beginning to end and to do it as an architect practicing. So I think learning those skills early and knowing what they are is a great advantage that today's students have. When I did it, we didn't have a list like that. You just worked long enough, worked in the right experience areas and hoped to learn the, the specifics of, and you've got, you got know, probably 95% of it, but there were some fundamentals there that I didn't know about till later. That's- um, So, for one example that I like to give is, um, I remember my first project that was under construction with me as a licensed architect doing it. uh, The the client or the the contractor needed to get payment and they sent me an application for payment. That was the first time I saw that. (laughs) Now, the application for payment is one of those things that's on the 96 tasks. So, had I known that, I mean, it, it. you know, 20 years later, yeah, I would have known what that was. Fortunately, it was something that came in, you know, at, at near the end of the day. I didn't know what it was. I called my mentor from IDP, who was a licensed uh, seasoned architect who I knew and trusted, and he was a good advisor. And he told me what it was and uh, told me how to handle it. And I didn't get embarrassed or uh, Put the contractor or the owner at edge because I didn't know something that was fundamental to my role as an architect.
0: That that's fantastic advice. Uh, I feel like especially if you're if you're somebody a student maybe or a young professional and you're gonna look to start your firm, a it's so important to have a mentor and you know that's uh, one of the great things about networking is you can you can find somebody who would wants to help you and see succeed. And
1: then, so thanks, that's great advice, definitely. Uh, Another piece of advice, and that touches on a pitfall that a lot of new architects have, is get an agreement with a client. So before you meet a client, it's good if you have just a basic letter saying that you're going to do architectural services, that it's going to cost them some money, but it's well worth the investment for them to do this, And that they need to give you some money up front so that when you're doing the work for them, you're not doing unpaid work. That's great advice as well. And what you want to do is have a retainer that's going to be enough money to cover all your time until you start billing your client regularly.
0: I have to imagine when you're starting your firm or even operating it now, it can be difficult sometimes to decide how much to charge a client on a project. Is there any good tips you have for maybe developing a billing system?
1: Well, um, traditionally, architects build clients about 7% of the construction cost. It was kind of like real estate is about 6% or 7% which I never figured why it was that way. But but it is. It seems and
0: like the architects should make more than the uh, real estate maybe. agents. <laughs>
1: I, I know realtors who work very, very hard. And many times they, be, by the time they sell one house, they've shown 50 houses. That's so, true. So I don't want to discredit the effort that they put in. Uh, but on the other hand um, with architects too there's a, a lot of liability for what they do a lot of skill uh, a lot of knowledge and a lot of talent that's involved in putting it together and it's hard to find that in a in a particular person but uh yeah, architects develop that over years yeah um, but um i forgot what is it going to say oh sorry no i i said yeah through your train of thought i
0: apologize no, I, I imagine those are just a lot more now uh, in 2020 you have to be worried about liability and everybody is looking for a responsible party if something goes wrong. So I have to imagine in owning a small firm uh, that that liability can be something you constantly have to deal with and I'm sure you're on a, the phone getting advice from your attorney every once in a while. and. Definitely.
1: Yeah, there's some it's good to have a good attorney and they can be your best friend when you're uh dealing with something. Fortunately, I haven't needed that. I'm I wasn't I was never in a position where there was um you know an issue that that got very serious. Um I did have one client that wanted to record every every conversation with me with a contractor uh, there's an issue hmm. with the contractor that wasn't going well, and she got a, a, an attorney involved. But it was really an issue between the contractor and uh, fortunately, we had a good trusting relationship with the client, and she knew I was on her side. Uh, and that's uh, maybe another point that's good to think about is if you do design build, you are in partnership with a contractor. And there's a different uh, scale of liability there. Most of the time when something goes awry with a project, it's during construction. And if you're in partnership with a contractor, that's a, that's a risk that you take. There's a lot of advantages to design build. Uh, but on the other hand, there's liabilities as well. Uh, I did do a project once where I became the contractor mainly because the project was A small addition and small remodelings all over this house. And the clients were very careful people who asked a lot of questions. And I think they scared off every contractor they talked to. And because they wanted to get their project built, I wanted to get it built. And we'd been through about 10 different contractors who backed out before starting the project. I told him, "Don't worry, I'll do it for you. I'll get the subcontractors. We'll get the project going." And we did. The project did get finished, but <clears throat> sorry, but uh-huh. the project did get finished. Uh, but it was a lot of time on my part. I spent much more. T- I spent probably twice as long on that project being the contractor as I did being the architect, which meant that I had. I got the fee for that the contracting as well but honestly i enjoyed the design work what much better than than the contracting work where you're chasing down subcontractors making sure the materials are there um you're not doing the work yourself as the contractor but you're coordinating everyone else who is and i just didn't enjoy that part of it i felt like you know i had to call people you know many many times over to get them to do something fairly simple and um you have to deal with the building departments uh a lot of times you have to go out to the job site on a moment's notice because something's not looking the way it should um and I did it I learned and got an appreciation for what contractors do but on the other hand I also learned okay I better I better stick to what I know and that's the architectural work and I enjoy that much better. Definitely. That's that's fantastic. Uh yeah, I, I started
0: my brief professional career uh, working for a design build in an office, a design build office for a developer Al Nyer. They're located in downtown Cincinnati. And I was I recommend if you can work in a design build office as a student or young professional just to see what it's like and Nair and did it right. They were so efficient, there was just a flow of information that was constant and uninterrupted between the estimator uh, the the, su- the superintendent the project manager and the architect and uh, as a result they had a relatively small office i think it was 11 or 12 people when i was there and they turned so many they built so many buildings so quickly and they they were great buildings and good quality as well so it was it was amazing to see the efficiency of just having everybody Working on the same team for one, but also being in in the same office and the communication and having meetings on a regular basis, it really helps the project, for sure. And if you're working for a design-build firm, chances are too, you're going to have a lot more access to gain some construction experience, which as a student is is huge. Uh, to actually see the buildings come up, I was in industrial, uh, and I got to see every step from where they clear the land to interior finishes. And it's a tremendous opportunity to see how buildings are constructed. And, uh, you know, then you come back into your office and you're not so much thinking about it as I'm just drawing drawings, but I'm drawing drawings. And if I was reading these drawings, would I be able to
1: understand how they come together? So that was tremendous. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, I think that's great advice. I also think it's good to Uh, If you don't work for a design-build company, uh, either work in construction management or construction labor, to be involved in the process, um, you get the complete picture of how a building goes together. I think you learn the most about how buildings go together from the architectural standpoint by doing construction drawings and, uh, and seeing every component of the building. When you are out at a construction site, you don't see the whole picture. You see bits and pieces of it, but you see the the reality of it. You see the actual building uh, being put together, but um, you don't understand like why everything is the way it is. You're, and I think you learn more about the actual construction of a building by uh, through the construction drawings because that's the complete picture. Uh, it does tell you though when you're in the construction management or design build or even construction uh side of it you know better what um they're looking for in your drawings um but when you're doing drawings you're actually you've got three main audiences one is the plans examiner who reviews it for permit number 2 it's the people doing the bidding on your project and they look for things that they can take cost takeoffs for And third, the uh, job superintendent and the subcontractors who are building off of your plans. And so you always have to think, and if you write an essay, you gotta think about your audience. If you're doing a set of construction drawings, you still gotta think about your audience and uh, you understand your audience better if you do a little bit of what they've done.
0: That's a fantastic point, thinking of your audience. I've, as simple as that is, I've, I never really thought about it that way. So that's a great point. Thank you, Alex. So uh, w- what are some of the favorite projects you, you've worked on? In your, do you have a favorite project, something that stood out
1: uh, in your, your time? I think um, as far as ecclesiastical projects, uh, it would be a new church and parish center that we designed and had built in Lexington, Kentucky. Um we worked with a great building committee there, and um, we were able to design a church from the ground up, and um, it, I thought it was a, gr- a great uh, a great experience uh, to, to work with everyone there. Uh, it wasn't easy, but it was a good challenge that I think everyone felt good about, and we had roadblocks in the way, and uh, in fact, we had a change building site at one point because uh, the zoning issues became so contentious. Uh, but that turned out to be a better thing as well. We got a better site and I think the parish uh, uh, really likes the new building and uh, I think it's, the, it's been a nice new landmark in that part of Lexington. That's fantastic. Oh. And we got to design it in a thirteenth fourteenth century ecclesiastical style that is so um, unique yeah and, yeah and uh you know the geometry of it uh was the way it should be i think um you know and the geometry of those churches actually is not that different from uh the the kind of geometry that we, you would put in an in iconography that the same that's in the same church as well i mean there's uh uh, symbolic geometric relationships that go on in the space itself um, that really enrich what the whole space is about. That's that's beautiful. We're going to have to have you on a
0: separate podcast. We'll talk about ecclesiastical Byzantine okay. architecture. Great. Uh, I wanted to finish, and I know you, um, you have a beautiful office over in the uh, Rookwood Pottery
1: Building. Uh, do you want to briefly talk about that sure. project? Sure, sure. Um, So uh, um, I took over the office in 2001. It was the same space that I, where I was working as an employee for Carl Strauss. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, when I took over, I first I didn't want people to mistake me for Carl Strauss. I didn't want to keep the same name of the office because I just I I'm no Carl Strauss. He's a a, an amazing architect. He's been an icon of. of uh, Cincinnati modern architecture for generations now, and um, I didn't feel like I the shoes were too big to fill for me, and um, so I gave the the firm a different name called Synthesis, uh, which is really the uh, bringing together of all the factors that it takes to make architecture architecture. Um, That's a beautiful name, by the way. Oh, thank I, you. I loved it. Thank you. yeah. And uh, it's also a Greek word, and I'm, my background's Greek as well. Uh, but in architecture, what makes it different from the other arts is that it brings together all the, all these realities that of the world around us physical realities, economic realities, political realities. And we bring those all together through design to make a, make a whole that's an expression of all those things. Uh, you express the site, your clients, their you know their their means or their budget, the technology that's available, uh, and it's, uh, all the other physical factors, the solar orientation, views that you have, whatever else the site has to offer. And you kind of synthesize all that together wow. into a whole. That is uh,
0: that is well thought out. I love it. I, it's better than the most businesses. It's <laughs> like, what name will we name it? And then it's something random. But I, I love that. It's uh, so personalized. I think this would be a good opportunity to mention I, I have an Instagram for the podcast now. It's uh, said, S-A-I-D underscore podcast. And I'll post some pictures of of. Your office, and so people can see how cool it is when you
1: get those to me. So great, definitely well, give thank it a follow. You. All <laughs> definitely. right, well, I'll, um, and I'll tell you, um, the office stayed pretty much the way it was when Carl Strauss had it until my partner, Notice Papadimas, came. He joined us in 2011, and um, we also had we grew to about four people. Well, the office is really designed for three. They said, "Well, it's time that we make a change to the office. Um, and so and it was really designed with drafting tables. I mean, and we weren't doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything we were doing was digital. I mean, it, so uh, we we needed a little bit more space. We needed workstations. so we remodeled the entire office at that time. And really, we came up with a design where everyone in the office had an input on it. Uh, So that was Notice, my partner, myself, uh, Steve Stidham, who was working with us, and Trang Vo, um, who was also with us at the time. And um, we all, you know, had input on that design. And what we loved about it was when we were finished, we could see that it was really a teamwork effort, um, not only in the design, but also the construction of it. Uh, part of what we like to do for clients is to make the most of their resources. I mean, if we can do something that looks great but didn't cost much, I think it's a good thing, and a lot of people like that as well. And we try to do that with the office. We were careful about what materials we used. We used some salvage materials. We used some, you know, materials that were being discontinued. Um, we, uh, you know, used some things that would have been thrown away. Um, like, uh, like tubes, uh, drawing tubes that the print shop didn't know what to do with. Interesting. Uh, discarded 2 by 4s and things like that. And the entire cost of it was probably a fraction of what it looks like we spent on the office. And I think that's one of the things that we like to show off to clients as well, is that we can be creative and make the most of their budget, and it's well worth the design fee. Uh, they usually save much more in the construction end and do something imaginative at the same time. That's that's so well thought out, and I love it. I love how that's,
0: uh, everything from the name to what you've done with your office to your clients, it's, it's all very thought out, more so than a lot of people I meet. So I think I, I really appreciate that about you and everything. So this, this I <laughs> yeah, mean, that's that's designed too. Yeah, definitely. It well, it needs to happen more and think like that. I would say, but well, we are uh starting to run out of time here, and so Alex, I very much appreciate you coming on the podcast. This has been fantastic, and we're gonna have you on here in a couple of weeks. So, uh, Alex, you're involved a lot in the co-op program as well, so we'll talk about that and what it's like at UC and getting a job and. So, yeah, we're looking forward to it. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, too. I really enjoy talking with you. How do we say uh, have a great day in Greek and uh, thank you for listening? Kailisa Mera. There you go. Well, thanks, everybody. And uh, don't forget to follow the uh, said podcast on Instagram and we'll post uh, some pictures of Alex's office and uh, maybe some of his projects as well if he's interested. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening.